Hi, and welcome to the McGregor Dementia Support Ministry Podcast, a podcast providing relevant resources to those currently walking the dementia journey with their loved ones. Today's podcast is a special episode to answer some of the questions that came up during our most recent Alzheimer's and Dementia Seminar held here at McGregor Baptist. And joining me today on this special podcast is Dr. Edward Shaw. Dr. Shaw is uniquely qualified to speak on this topic of dementia. Dr. Shaw was a practicing academic radiation oncologist for 23 years, specializing in the treatment of adult and children with brain cancer, as well as a researcher focusing on the cognitive effects of chemotherapy and radiation therapy in cancer survivors. He was also the primary care partner for his wife, Rebecca, who was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's disease in 2007 at age 53 and died in 2016 following a nine year journey. Inspired by Rebecca's journey, his medical interest shifted to dementia diagnosis and treatment. And with his additional training in mental health counseling, he founded the Memory Counseling Program, part of the section on gerontology and geriatric medicine at Wake Forest Baptist Health. In October 2016, Dr. Shaw's first dementia counseling-related book was published, Keeping Love Alive as Memories Fade, The Five Love Languages and the Alzheimer's Journey, which was co-authored by Deborah Barr and Dr. Gary Chapman. His two newest books, The Dementia Care Partners Workbook and A Leader's Manual for Dementia Care Partner Support Groups, were released in the summer of 2019. Dr. Shaw is also the founder and CEO of Empath Education. Uh, He and his wife, Claire, reside in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He has three adult daughters, two grandsons, and a stepson. So with all that, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Shaw. Thanks so much, Mark. It's great to be back with you as always. Yeah, well, thanks so much for joining me and for being willing to take the time to follow up on our seminar by answering some of the questions that were asked during that seminar. And I want to say to our listeners that if you're listening and you were not able to attend this year's seminar, all of Dr. Shaw's sessions are now up as podcast on our Dementia Podcast channel. So I would encourage you to go and listen to those as soon as you finish listening to this podcast. So, Dr. Shaw, let's get started. And before we dive into some of those specific questions, I thought it would be really helpful for our listeners to get some, make sure that, that everybody's kind of on the same page when we when we talk about Alzheimer's and dementia. Because I remember the very first time I came to this seminar, I learned a lot. And when you say one, it doesn't necessarily mean the exact same thing. So give us some definitions and understanding about those terms. Sure. So dementia is an umbrella term. Uh, Similar to if, if you say to someone, what kind of car do you have? You need more information. So dementia is a term that refers to a group of diseases that are neurodegenerative diseases. So that means that something causes the neurons, which are the, the nerve fibers of the brain to get sick. And those neurons don't function as well. And sometimes they die and cause the brain to shrink. That's what dementia is. Other common neurodegenerative diseases include things like Parkinson's disease or Lou Gehrig's disease. So dementia is the umbrella term. And then underneath that umbrella are about 40 different kinds of dementia. Hmm. The most common is Alzheimer's disease. That's the one we've heard of the most. About two thirds of people that have dementia have Alzheimer's. And then there are other different types as well. 
what characterizes a person who has dementia is a loss of cognitive function. So cognitive functions are our thinking functions, memory, multitasking, language function, spatial function, even just paying attention and concentrating. And when you have cognitive issues, you can secondarily have functional loss, doing the day-to-day -day things that you're used to doing every day, like driving or taking medicine or paying your bills and things like that. So uh, dementia uh, is characterized by both cognitive and functional loss. So as I said, there are lots of different kinds of dementia. The most common ones, kind of the big five, are Alzheimer's disease, vascular dementia, Lewy body dementia, and its cousin, the dementia of Parkinson's disease, and then frontotemporal dementia, which has been in the news a lot lately because a famous actor has contracted that. I know that for those that have attended the seminar, you spend a lot more time talking about some of these very things in the seminar, helping people to understand, which again, I would encourage folks to go back and listen to those sessions that uh, were recorded live during our, our seminar on dementia. So that, thank you for that, 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 that introduction. That's very, very helpful. So I know that there were several questions that were asked in a similar way that revolved around the idea of, okay, how can I prevent dementia or how can we now treat dementia? What are ways, what are things that are out there to treat? So let's start with the prevention in case someone's listening and they're like, okay, I want to do everything I can to make sure I never get Alzheimer's or dementia. Uh, what's the, what's the secret, uh, secret ingredient there for us? Well, there's probably more than one secret ingredient. Like every good recipe, you need lots of ingredients to, to make it taste good. Um, believe it or not, probably the single factor that helps prevent cognitive decline more than any other factor is exercise. Mm. So I know when I say the E word, the exercise word, people think about you know, getting on a treadmill and, you know, uh, running like crazy until you sweat. But there's been research even in the last couple of months that has shown even if you're up and moving 10 or 20 minutes a day, yeah. you know, getting your heart rate up, mm -hmm. um, that that will actually lower your risk of cognitive decline. Yeah. So we could spend a whole hour talking about research and uh, about the research of exercise, but but movement, getting your heart rate up, you know, ideally 45 to 90 minutes a week. And it doesn't have to be vigorous exercise, you know, uh, is, is what is going to help prevent most. We now often say if it's good for your heart, it's good for your brain. Yeah. And even though the number of people being diagnosed with dementia is going up because the baby boomers are aging up and, and age is the biggest risk factor. Within every age group, so in 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, the likelihood of developing dementia is actually going down. And that's because of better heart health affecting and causing better brain health. And that's an encouraging thing. So that is a very positive trend that uh, if you're seeing that, that beginning to track down, because it seems like everything tracks up in this category. Yes, it does. but. Um, it is a positive trend and it's, it, it's encouraging, you know, 
It's just that because age is the main risk factor and as a population, we have more seniors as a percent of our population than ever before, um, the, the number of cases is going up, uh, but the likelihood of getting it has gone down. Any other, any other things we can do to prevent, uh, prevent that? Yes. <laughs> so the next big thing also is a, a relatively recent finding actually um, comes from some research here at Wake Forest University School of Medicine, and that is the effect of blood pressure control. So there is a big study comparing people who kept the top number of their blood pressure at 140 and above versus those who kept it closer to 120 and below. So um, the, the group in the 120 and below had very aggressive management of their blood pressure with medication, you know, controlling diet, low salt, you know, whatever it took to keep the blood pressure down. And in the study, it was a big national study involving over 50,000 participants. But at the end of 10 years of research, the group that had the lower blood pressure with the top number being 120 and below, they had a 20% less likelihood of developing dementia. Mm. So now we work very aggressively at keeping that top number in that 120 and below range. And yeah. That, so that has turned out to be another uh, really big preventive factor, Mark, in mm. what you can do. And that first one obviously probably affects the second one. So if you're uh, exercising regularly, it can help keep your blood pressure down, which in turn can reduce your chances. It does. <laughs> Movement helps about every part of your medical and mental health, mm -hmm. um, your brain and heart uh, and spirits uh, all together. Um, another factor is diet. So um, in the news, the last few months has been research that has shown a Mediterranean-like diet, uh, de-emphasizing dairy products and red meat uh, in favor of olive oil and fish and mm -hmm. white protein like turkey or, or chicken, um, that these are things that also they help your heart health and they help your brain health too. Yeah. So just basic healthy living. And I know, uh, unfortunately, as Americans, you know, what you just described doesn't apply to so many because they don't exercise. Uh, their blood pressure is high because of all those factors, plus stress and all the things they're dealing with. And then the diet is just terrible for, you know, the typical American diet. So, so hopefully folks will begin to make some changes and we can begin to reverse some of these things. Yes. And I want to mention one other thing, if I may, Mark, and that is um, we also know that being engaged socially is a really important factor in preventing cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease. And we learned a hard lesson in this during the pandemic when especially our seniors who were in residential care, like assisted living or memory care, that um, accounting for other factors the likelihood that they wouldn't survive the COVID pandemic was increased, we think, just because of social isolation. Mm. And we now know that being socially and cognitively engaged also is really good for your brain. Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about some things that uh, are out there now that are potentially things that are treating Alzheimer's and dementia. Yes. Yeah, so... Um, in the last year, uh, we've had two new drugs approved for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. 
Um, this is the first time in medical history that the FDA has approved drugs to treat Alzheimer's disease. The names of those drugs, one is called aducanumab, <laughs> the other is called lecanemab. And so these drugs both end in the letters MAB, which stands for monoclonal antibody. And if you watch TV, you see these drugs and other monoclonal antibody drugs advertised all the time. And these are drugs that have really changed how health, uh, how medicines are managing many common forms of human diseases, these monoclonal antibodies. And it's where you use the immune system, very simply stated, to get rid of the bad guy. Hmm. So we know in Alzheimer's disease that the bad guy is a protein that sort of gums up the brain, it collects in the brain, causes the brain to get inflamed and neurons to get sick and not function well and some of them to die and for the brain to shrink. And what these two new drugs do is they're like little Pac-Men. They munch the, the um, amyloid in the brain and they reduce the amount of amyloid that's coming up the brain. And that's, that's the good news. Now, the effect of these two drugs is, um, is pretty modest. So it will make the person's scan look better in terms of reduced amyloid. Um, it will slow the progression of their dementia a little bit. But so far, the drugs have not uh, shown a benefit in improving cognitive or thinking function in improving the person's functional status. Mm -hmm. So these are baby steps and I think what will be a series of drugs that emerge over the next decade. Yeah. Um, so the FDA um, has approved the drugs. They're expensive, about $10,000 a month. Medicare wow. is still deciding whether they're going to uh, reimburse. Mm -hmm. And the person who takes the drugs um, has to have an MRI scan of the brain, which is where your body fits into this this very tight tube and there's lots of noise. It takes about 45 minutes or an hour. Um, and the scans are not going to be paid for by insurance, but the scans are necessary because the brain will swell or breed or bleed in about a third uh, of people who take these drugs. So I'd say they're a bunt single, not a home run, but they're an important first step. First step. Yeah. So for those that are that are still healthy, uh, your prevention right now, you have a lot better percentage in taking care of your body now and being proactive and preventing them right now what we can do as far as treating. But like you said, hopefully that will change. I want to shift gears on you a little bit and uh, talk about those. And this is, uh, you can kind of hear the heart in this question where, when the person asks, when caregiving needs overwhelm family caregivers, what do they do? When caregiving needs overwhelm family, uh, overwhelmed family caregivers, what do they do? Yes, Mark, that's, that's such a, um, a heartfelt question. Um, and family caregiving uh, is a really, really hard job. And for those who are listening who are family caregivers, um, you know, you're, you're heroes in the journey that your loved one is on with this disease because caregiving is uh, it's a it's a marathon, uh, not a sprint. 
And um, I, I was having lunch with a friend today who I, I hadn't seen for many years. And we were just talking about, you know, for, for my care of my late wife, Rebecca, it was a nine year journey. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a long, long journey that, you know, has its ups and downs and can be very discouraging. You know, I talk about what I call the, um, uh, the stress points of the journey. So when someone is diagnosed with dementia, a stage of, of the illness we call mild cognitive impairment, they may have some memory loss, you know, more than maybe we would expect for their age, but they're otherwise pretty functional. They may still be working. They probably are still driving. You know, they're uh, engaged with their family and their friends as they were. Their memory just isn't so good. But then as the disease gets worse, you get into the early and middle stages, they start having difficulty with things like driving or grocery shopping or cooking, laundry, household chores, paying bills, uh, managing medications. And, um, and that's when the need for having help begins. Hmm. The biggest stressor mark in family caregiving comes in that transition to later stage dementia when the person starts being fully dependent in the things I mentioned, but now they're having trouble with toilet hygiene or feeding themselves or taking a bath or a shower, even safely getting in and out of a chair or in and out of bed. And that's when most family caregivers will say, you know, can I really do this anymore? Mm, yeah. Now, or do I need help? So help may be depending on the family and, you know, their own ability to do family caregiving, their financial resources, you know, all sorts of, of factors, even just the layout of their home. Um, if they have a multi-level home, it's harder to caregive in a, a three-story home than a just a ranch house. Yeah. So lots of factors. Um, and although many families will make a promise to their mom or dad for adult children or husband or wife for, for the spouse, they'll say, oh, we'll never put you in a nursing home. You know, sometimes the best place for a person to have their care is in residential care. Right. A place like assisted living or memory care where you have more hands to help. We say that if a person can't walk independently, if they need help up from better chair or they, you know, can't stand independently for every 80 pounds a person weighs, they need one caregiver. Mm. So if you have a 160 pound loved one and they can't walk without help, you need two people. Wow. Mm. And, you know, currently if you had two paid caregivers in your home 24 seven, That'd be about a quarter million dollars a year. Ooh. You know, um, talking about the stress on caregivers and what that's like, I just heard uh, just a, a friend of mine here at the church uh, two weeks ago, his um, mother-in-law passed away very suddenly. And I was surprised to hear that because I knew that she had been the caregiver to her husband for years and they had didn't think he had too much time left to live. Well, guess what? She ended up passing away and going home to be with the Lord before he did. And so talk a little bit about that stress that is that that weight that is that weighs on a, on a caregiver. Yes. So, Mark, there's been a lot of interesting research um, in caregiver resilience and caregiver susceptibility. 
So for instance, you know, on the, to start with the bad news, um, <laughs> caregivers are at about twice the risk of developing dementia themselves than um, the general non-caregiving population. Wow. Mm. On the other hand, the life expectancy of caregivers is actually longer than people who are non-caregivers. Mm. And so while, while the stress of caregiving can affect your cognitive health and even your own risk of developing dementia, for most people, they do develop a strength, a resilience, and this is, you know, that figure of speech, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, <laughs> that caregiving often does make people mm. stronger, physically, emotionally, uh, and even in their faith. Yeah. Um, and so there's an amazing resilience um, about caregivers that, that um, I see in, in my daughters and I, um, Hmm. Uh, as we cared for Rebecca, uh, I see in my wife, Claire, as she cared for her late husband, Jim, and, uh, and I've seen in so many of the caregivers in our counseling program, I, I admire people who are committed to this journey. Someone had asked the question, uh, and, and maybe you can just kind of give some counsel um, when they need to make that transition as a caregiver from being the primary caregiver to seeing them placed in some kind of residential care uh, just words of encouragement for them. Cause that's, that's hard for anybody. Just like you said, they might've made a promise, but they realize that the best thing for, for mom or dad or my spouse is that they get this 24 seven care, any words of encouragement and how they can make that transition and what their role is at that point. Yes. Um, so it's a great question, a common question. Um, you know, when, when you have to make the transition for whatever reason, you know, Often caregivers were, will personalize that and they'll say, well, I'm a bad spouse or a bad adult child, son or daughter, because, you know, we had to make the transition to the residential care. And I, I think the, the first thing you can do is to release yourself of that guilt and to really focus on, I'm now putting mom or dad or my husband or wife in a care situation where I can transition myself from being their day-to-day -day caregiver to being their son or daughter or husband and wife again and to, to love them and provide that social engagement and support uh, without having the day-to-day -day responsibility. So just let go of that guilt mm -hmm. and you know be the companion that, that you're able to be without having to to, um, do those day-to-day -day responsibilities. Um, I think that there are some things if if you have someone in residential care that you can do to, to optimize their situation. So you can be present there, you can go and visit, get to know the staff, the CNAs, the certified nursing assistants and the nurses who do the day-to-day the -day care, they have really hard jobs. Express your gratitude to them, get to know them personally a bit it will translate into better care for your loved one <laughs> yep. and show up at different times, you know, different shifts. So you get to know people on the day and the evening and uh, maybe less so on the night shift, but you get to know all the people who are involved with the caregiving. Um, and so I, I think that's a really important thing to do is to be involved in that residential care setting. Yeah. If you've ever been in one of those, 
uh, facilities and you, you, you see so many folks that, that don't get visitors. There's not people coming to check. And I just, that it just breaks your heart. So yeah, I encourage anyone. And I'm sure most of our listeners would, would, it would almost be the opposite. They might be showing up too much, <laughs> not letting them, the people that work there do their job. But, uh, that's a, that's a great word of encouragement. Let me ask you another question that was submitted. Um, how do I love my spouse whose personality has changed and they are no longer the person I fell in love with? Yes, Mark, I, I read that question and uh, it literally, it, it brought tears to my eyes um, because we know that the most common symptom and the first symptom of Alzheimer's disease, frontotemporal dementia, Lewy body dementia is a change in personality. That person is different than they used to be. And it creates something that I talk about in the, the fourth chapter of, of um, or the fifth chapter of my book, The Dementia Care Partners Workbook. It's called, uh, the, it's the chapter on grief and loss. And it causes this thing that we call um, in the grief counseling world, ambiguous loss. Hmm. So you look at the person, especially in the first half of their dementia journey, um, and they look exactly the same as they always had. And yet they're a different person because of the personality change. And um, in, in our book, Keeping Love Alive as Memory Fades, uh, Debbie Barr, who, uh, who is one of our co-authors and kind of the lead author on the book, she described it in the second chapter of the book as uh, the, the loss of the emotional glue of a relationship. You know, it's the thing that that knits two people together. You have your individual identities in the relationship, but then you have this idea, you know, as it says biblically, the two become one. You know, the two of you, you, you have a twosomeness as a couple where you really function as a one unit, but you're, you know, you're, you're, you're partners, your husband and wife in the marriage. And, um, and that twosomeness begins to change it begins to erode and as the person who wrote the question said the man i married is no longer that same man mm. so i think when you're faced with um with this kind of ambiguous loss um you you have to focus um on maybe a, you have to focus on different aspects of the relationship so i say that with rebecca even though we lost intimacy several years into her journey with Alzheimer's disease, even though we lost physical intimacy, the hugging and the kissing and the sexual intimacy, we had a level of emotional intimacy that's something that I'll never forget. And so at night when I would put her to bed, and she, you know, at this point in the the journey she didn't really know me as her husband anymore and I would just hold her hands and I'd get right up to her face and I'd tell her how much I loved her what a good wife she was what a good mom she was to our children and you know in those moments she would nod she would say yeah she didn't have many words at that point but Mark there was still a connection there to the woman who I had known for almost 40 years mm. and so i think instead of looking at sort of the big picture 
you have to look at those small things. Yeah. And um, instead of you can focus on, oh, this is a terrible disease, you know, and God, how, how have you allowed this terrible thing to happen? And I'm, I'll say there were days when I said that, days when I was very discouraged. But then, it, you know, in the same vein, the same God blessed me with this wonderful woman hmm. that I was married to for so many years and three amazing children. And, you know, there can't be like a good God and a bad God. It's all the same That's God. Right. And so, uh, you know, people have said, well, did this all affect your faith? And I said, of course it affected my faith, the deeper faith. Yeah. Trust him more. Um, and, you know, um, that, that's what I can say is mm. it really, it requires an introspection um, and a quest, you know, I, it's so important to be able to ask these big questions of why him or why her, but you know, I, th I think God is big enough to handle that. Yeah. Amen. Well, you mentioned a couple of your, um, and thank you so much for sharing the, a, a very personal side of your own journey there with our, with our listeners, Dr. Shaw, you mentioned a couple of your, your books early on in the answer to that question. And we're going to, get that uh, information in the show notes. So if someone's listening and they, hey, I'd like to get a copy of that, there'll be a link there that will take them so they can actually purchase those and have those as a resource to help them. And anything else we mentioned or have mentioned, we'll, we'll try to get in there as well. Given what we've, we've talked about, especially what you were just sharing, you were kind of leading into this very nicely, but how does a caregiver that is in whatever stage of caregiving, how do they maintain hope? Um, yes, so I think um, I'll, I'll describe another saying in, in the book um, that caregiving is not an individual event, it's a team sport. And I think it's really important to surround yourself with family, friends, your faith community, that all of these people that are in your life have to become part of who supports your loved one with dementia, but also supports you as the primary caregiver. And so, and I, I think that you have to be very intentional about building that team. Mm -hmm. And I would just encourage to ask people you know, you could say to a friend, you know, if you would just come spend a couple hours with him or her, wh whoever the person with dementia is, and give me a little break once a quarter, that would be a huge blessing to me. We had 17 people who supported Rebecca during her journey. Uh, again, family, friends, we had paid caregivers uh, and, um, and our church family. And um, you just, you need that to be surrounded it you know it it really takes a village as the saying goes so i th i think that's one way of of maintaining hope mark i also think that you have to be intentional about taking care of yourself so i say every caregiver if they're the kind of the main caregiver for their their loved one they need to make sure they're taking an afternoon off a week or they're getting away a couple days a month you know, that um, their loved one with dementia, if they're in the middle or late stages, 
if if they're gone from them for a day or a week, that person probably their their timeline is not uh, quite the same as it used to be. And um, so you really need to pay attention to self-care to reduce that stress level. Mm. Good words. Very good. And I know we have talked about this several times and you know that the heart of our seminar that we invite you down seems like every year, which is wonderful uh, to have you each year, um, is to make sure that not only do we give these practical words of encouragement and resource, but also to point people to the gospel and the hope that we ultimately find there. And I want to just remind anybody listening right now that, and and we're recording this right around in the in the middle of the Easter season, yeah. and so we are we are being reminded in this moment of exactly what Christ has done for us for those that are believers for those in Christ we are His because of what He did for us, and I have a chance to to do several memorial services, funerals uh, every year. And there's a passage I always love to read in, in the Psalms. It's Psalms 39. And a lot of times it's not one you would think about initially when you think about a, a memorial service. But it's, again, pointing to that question I just asked you, you know, where, where can we find our hope? Because let's be honest, as, as a culture, we look for hope in just about everything and anything and anyone except for God. But the psalmist in Psalm 39 said this, beginning in verse four, he says, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man leaps up, heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. So it sounds pretty bleak. Life's short and you're not even going to know who's going to get your stuff when you die. But this, listen to what the psalmist says. He says, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? And I love these next five words. My hope is in you. The psalmist had put his hope in God and God alone, realizing that, yeah, life is short and everything is fleeting. However, there's one certainty we can have, and that's our hope that can be found in no one, nothing else but Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross that we are in the midst of celebrating right now because of that substitutionary sacrifice that for those that turn from their sin and put their faith and trust in Christ and him alone can have eternal life. What, an, what a great promise of hope. And for the person struggling in the midst of any type of suffering, whether it's caregiving or anything else that you may be listening to right now and you're struggling, you're suffering, recognize that there is, there can be hope in the midst of a storm. There can be hope. First of all, we know that really this is, this life is truly short and that once this life does pass away for those in Christ, we have a, an eternity of glory uh, in his presence, without the, the dementia, without the Alzheimer's, without the cancer, and the list goes on and on. So I, I, it, I guess the older I get, the more I am reminded over and over of that eternal hope that we have, not just the joy that we can have in Christ now, but eternally for all time ever, period. Anything else you want to add to that? Well, I'll, I'll end with another little story from from Rebecca's journey, um, we had gone to the Mayo Clinic for a second opinion and 
saw a world famous dementia diagnosis doctor there. And on the way back, uh, from that visit, we stopped and kind of pulled over and cried and we, we held each other and, and one another's arms. And she looked at me and she said, you know, I know how this is going to end. Uh, this is going to take my life. And, uh, the doctor had told us eight to 10 years. It was nine years, almost from the day we got that second opinion. Uh, she said, I just asked two things. One is, uh, that you'll love me till the very end course was an easy request to honor and then she said you know i know where i'm going i'm going to go home to jesus and just allow me the blessing of as natural a death as possible hmm. so i can just slip from here in into his arms hmm. without tubes and uh, all, all the kind of stuff that we can do to keep people alive and you know um she was, she had a strong faith. And I think that's what kept her going until the very end. Dr. Shaw, I've said this before, and I even mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you are uniquely qualified in the ministry, I believe, that God has called you into right now because of both your academic training, but especially because of your personal experience with your first wife, Rebecca, and the struggle that you went through. And so I am so grateful that that uh, you made a, a career shift <laughs> and, uh, and, and are doing what you're doing now specifically, even as I guess some people would call it uh, retirement. It's anything but retirement. You stay quite busy, both writing and speaking and training and equipping people. Uh, obviously, it's a passion, and uh, we look forward to having you back uh, in February of 2024 again. Uh, to continue to be a part of our dementia seminar. I know I've never, ever heard a single person say, oh, it's that guy again? No, it's anything but. It's like every time I hear him speak, I am encouraged, I am challenged, I learn something. And so thank you for taking the time out to, of your schedule to be a part of our uh, podcast series here and answer some questions from folks. And who knows, I might even ask you back for another uh, another episode of another different podcast later. But uh, thank you so much for being a part of this. And I want to thank our listeners for listening to the podcast. We'll be putting, as I mentioned, links to many of the resources we mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. And by the way, if you haven't yet subscribed to this channel, please do so. And also, if you would, if you find this uh, content helpful that you've been listening to on our channel, leave a review. It'll help us out a lot. But thanks again for listening. God bless.